So following the events that happened on Sunday, uh, we had an unfortunate situation where one of our DM members actually collapsed during the service, and unfortunately our sermon was delayed in being recorded. So I am recording this at home on Tuesday afternoon uh, to share with, with you, to share with the congregation, um, and for all of you listening online. Um, for those of you concerned, the, the person who fainted during the sermon on Sunday is doing well. They're in hospital, and they're being well looked after, and uh, they're um, on their way to making uh, a good recovery. Um, and so we thank everyone for their prayers and concerns, both on Facebook and within the life of our congregation. The reading for this sermon came from James 3, verses 13, to James 4, verse 3. And this section covered a lot of really great stuff that has to do with where we are in our discipleship journey as a congregation. Namely, it uh, encourages us to comprehend and understand that our role is not to judge and to be in judgment, but instead uh, we see the title of this sermon, which is such a crucial um, verse in this section, Peacemakers Who Sow Peace. And that's what I wanted to share with you. I was thinking about um, what's been happening in Brisbane in the lead up to the 2032 Olympics. And one of the things that I was reflecting on was the fact that there's so much stuff that we're looking forward to. People keep reflecting on the last time we had an event like this. And, and I know, you know, we've had the, the Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast and we had the Commonwealth Games at South Bank. But the Olympics is one of those events for the promotion of peace and international relationships that is really unique. And I think the closest that we've come to that in our history here in Brisbane really is the World's Fair in 1988. I studied it in school. We've talked about it a lot in, uh, in different community organizing spaces. And we've drawn a few comparisons. And I think one of the really interesting ones was the fact that we had all of these cool and different things that were being done at the time. Like we had a monorail, maglev train, um, there were blimps floating above South Bank, gathering energy, wind energy, um, and uh, and of course um, the the fondly remembered Matilda, who was a a thirty foot tall fiberglass kangaroo that winked. Um, now she took up residence at Dreamworld when I first moved to Brisbane. And uh, she looked somewhat neglected by that stage. Um, the, the memory of 1988 had faded uh, 10 years later, so much so that you could see it in Matilda. And, and sadly, she's no longer there. She's no longer at the entrance of Dreamworld greeting people um, in the same way how she, she's been forgotten. And so many of the things, so many of those technologies, the blimps, the maglev, they're no longer part of our, um, our zeitgeist here in, in Queensland. And I, I thought about how these things were a flash in the pan of what could be, and sadly they're no longer around. What is around is that the development of South Bank has stayed. And it's now a reflection of the city and, and the people from Brisbane 
who go beyond Brisbane and, and meet others who are coming here on holiday or visiting, they recommend that they come and stay in South Bank in this um, last um, vestige of what was such a significant event in the history and life of the city. I think when I think about James and what he was writing about, he was pushing, he was pointing back to a different time as well. He was pointing to a time when Jesus was walking among his disciples. And he encourages the church, now dispersed and under persecution, to look back and think what it was like when Jesus was among them. And the importance of Jesus' teaching and sacrifice for them in, in the place that they found themselves. This is what's so crucial for me about who we are today and who we need to be. Because if we continue to define ourselves by whatever thing comes new, then we forget that which we came from. Now, I'm not suggesting here that we need to go back to our old religious ways. No, not at all. But I am saying that there is a fundamental core of who we are as Christians that cannot be neglected, cannot go by the wayside. And that in this world of competing philosophies and ideas, we must hold to that absolute truth. And that is that Jesus lived walked among humans, gave his life for us, and then in doing so, created the way for us to be with him in eternity. And no matter where we find ourselves, that is something that we need to continue to uh, experience and express and live out. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So I invite you now to bow your heads with me as we pray. And we ask God to meet us in this space wherever we are. Father, bless us with an understanding of this word. Help us know and understand. And I commit all those who are listening to you right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Peacemakers who sow in peace. I want to begin with this verse here that comes from James 3 verses 5 to 6. So this is just before the section that you would have looked at as part of the reading. It says, consider what a great forest is set on fire but by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Now, I think one of the things that we need to begin with understanding and comprehending here is that James was a person of his time and season. And people who have preached on this in the past and have spoken about this are also people of their time and season. Here, the word that he uses, hell, is not exactly an accurate translation because the concept of hell that we have in Christianity really didn't exist back then. Instead, the concept of hell that he's talking about here is a, a very literal and real place. And that place is called Gehenna in Hebrew. It is the Hinmon Valley just outside of Jerusalem. And it's a place where in the time of the judges, uh, human sacrifices were done, um, where people burned children. That place with its horrid history then later on became a place where Israel 
through its refuse and fires and burning were happening all the time as that was how the refuse was consumed. And so you can imagine that for the, the, the people of God who had this set of laws and systems of restrictions, Gehenna was not only a place that was corrupt and dirty and outside of the law, but it was very literally a place of absolute destruction and decay. This is where James wants to draw our connection and understanding of the power of the tongue and the power of the evil that it can have. Because you see, he's talking about that corruption. So he's saying that if we do not bring under control the tongue, then we run the risk, the gamut of falling into that space of corruption. And before this section, he's actually describing how we put a bit into the horse's mouth to help direct him. How we put a rudder on the boat and help the boat um, find its, its, its tack. The reality, dear friends, is that he's not talking about a pacific, happy, little animal, peaceful animal, and then you stick the bridle in its mouth and all of a sudden it comes under your dominion. No, he's talking about a wild animal. I've shared with you who have been listening to me in the past about my grandfather. He was a gaucho in Argentina, and he was actually quite reputable and quite well known for being a horse breaker. Now, I know that I'm not sure if that terminology is all that okay in the 21st century. He didn't actually break horses, um, but he exercised a dominion over the horses when a wild horse or an unruly horse would come to him, uh, he could control it and tame it. And that's what he did. And, uh, and he would often use that with a, with a cord or, or a tie. And the way how Argentinians do this is uh, the gauchos have, tra have had a, a tradition of having a power, uh, a, a power encounter with the horse where um, a man or a, a couple of men who are very, very strong are able to hold down the horse or subdue the horse with with ropes and, and other things, not to hurt the animal. In fact, they are very, very cautious to make sure the animal is not hurt or damaged in any way, but to demonstrate very clearly to the animal that they have it under their dominion. So when James is talking about bridling the tongue, that's what he's talking about. See, people have used these verses in the past to try and justify some kind of notion that the tongue that's being spoken about here is, is a normal tongue, a, a, a tongue that is, is free and able to speak and communicate clearly. Perhaps even they've used it to, um, to uh, bridle the voices of women or, or of people with alternative views and thoughts. But that's not what James is actually talking about here. James is talking about the power of the tongue to corrupt to lead us into a place where we are playing into evil's hand. And that, that is really what he's getting at. Because he has got this flock of people who fled Jerusalem, who are being oppressed, who are fearful for their lives. And as they go out from Jerusalem, they're out in the world and they're being affected by all these other crazy ideas, philosophies, religions. And some of these have got some interesting things in them, but others are very, very, very negative. 
and they're kind of allowing them to come in and affect their Christian worldview. Now that can also be said of our Christian society today, where lots of weird ideas can jump in and corrupt us. And this is part of the reason why I bring you this message today. Now I want to make it clear, just because I am saying that his description of hell in this particular verse, Gehenna, is describing or metaphorizing a physical real place. That doesn't mean that I don't believe in hell. I do. I do. And the Bible makes it clear that hell is a real place and punishment is real. But what we need to understand is that we are not supposed to be afraid of hell. For if we have Christ at work in our lives, then hell and evil do not have that dominion over us. Instead, we submit willingly, beautifully, to Christ who has allowed us to then come into his presence. Now, I've actually witnessed this with an animal, an animal that does not need to be broken, an animal that is already tame in the sense that he recognizes the master and what the master desires for that animal in that context and how beneficial it is. I remember not so many years ago at the uh, medieval fair here in, 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 in Queensland, in Caboolture, and this astoundingly beautiful creature, this, um, this gigantic horse, I, I don't remember the name of the, the breed, I, I believe it might have been a Clydesdale, he was limping. He had, he had something in, caught in his horseshoe and the, um, the owner of the horse, because this was a, a medieval fair, there were many blacksmiths around and he found one who did work on horseshoes and so he brought the animal over and, and I remember seeing this magnificent gigantic creature who had been very skittish around other people um, looking at this blacksmith and recognizing what he was meant to do, what he was going to do. The animal calmed down with encouragement from his master, of course, and put his gigantic hoof on what looked like a small pile of logs so that the blacksmith could then come over the top of the hoof and be, begin to clean out whatever muck had gone in underneath the hoof and between the horseshoe and was causing the animal this distress. This, my friends, is how we need to respond to Christ in our lives. Not bucking, but instead submitting, recognizing Him at work. And in that way, we can then allow the Master to do what He needs to do for us. We see in the book of Luke that He quotes Jesus, where Jesus Himself also draws a connection to Gehenna. In Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has the authority to throw you into Gehenna. Yes, I tell you, fear him. <clears throat> Two possible misconstructions, misunderstandings with this particular verse. The first is, what does it mean to fear someone? Jesus here is not talking about us being fearful of God, worried that God is going to catch us out when we're doing the wrong thing. 
Instead, he's talking about reverence. He's talking about respect. He's talking about an acknowledgement of the reality of God's power. That's what he means when he says fear. And so when he says, you know what? You're worried about oppression. You're worried about these guys coming and killing you. But isn't it worse when the one who can come and not just cause that destruction in the earthly, but also in the soul? That's what he's saying. See, that corruption of what Gehenna is meant that those that refuse, that waste that was put in there and, and whoever found themselves among it was ritually unclean, was completely outside of the camp, could not come home, could not lie down in bed. They were completely unclean. Now, this, this was what their society was like. The insiders and the outsiders. And what he's saying here is that if you do not respect God, then you are as an outsider. And this is what he needed to say to, to help shock those early believers, those early disciples, into understanding the importance of that submission. Because the reality of the Christian discipleship journey is that we get to a point where eventually we say, Lord, not my will, but yours. And this is what Jesus was getting at. Didn't he say to the disciples, pick up your cross and follow me? Didn't he tell the disciples, you will experience tribulation and persecution? Didn't he advise them that the lowest will be made the greatest? All of these things were to demonstrate that as followers of Christ, we must be ready to submit our will before God. Now, the question you may ask, be asking yourself is, how do we do that? Actually, God has made it really easy through the Christian church for us to be able to do that. We have got people who have been lifelong Christians, who have been involved in congregations, who have been involved in ministry. And it would be easy for any one of us to submit to any one of those individuals, to be saying to them, hey, I want to learn from you. I want to open the Bible together. I want to understand God's will for my life better through you, through your witness, through your testimony. Absolutely. But I caution you in that because you need to find a person who is able to journey, acknowledging that they themselves have to humbly submit also. The best Christian leaders, my friends, are not the ones who are so full of themselves they think they've got right answer for every situation lord knows i most certainly do not whenever i'm looking for an answer i go first to the bible i try and find it through google search through <coughs> through parallel verses through um, uh, word search uh, um, algorithms i try to go to a passage of the bible that i know in my heart could speak to that context. In, on one time, I even just put the Bible on the table and opened to a random page and said, Father, speak to me. Whatever you do, make sure that you're submitting firstly to God. And then it is always good and healthy and good discipleship to make sure that you have other Christians around you who you can submit to, whether they are elders, deacons, 
ministers, pastors, um, or even people who have been in the faith for a long time. The reality is that we need to be prepared to hear the voice of God in our neighbors. This is a step towards good discipleship. And this is part of what Jesus was instructing his, his friends. He wanted them to be able to be there for each other because you know what? He knew that eventually he would no longer be with them. And so he needed them to be able to minister in this way too. So I draw your attention to James 3 verses 14 to 15. In that verse he says, If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such quote-unquote wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So we need to begin with that reality. When we ourselves are so full of ourselves, we are not actually saying the words of God. We are not doing the things in our discipleship that God desires that we do. But instead, we need to look for a heavenly wisdom, for a higher wisdom, for an opportunity for us to respond in a, an appropriate way with God's will behind it. James goes on to say, verses 17 to 18, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness so if you're looking for that Christian leader look for these attributes look for someone who loves peace look for someone who is considerate of themselves and of those around them look for someone who is submissive who does not think that they have all the answers but is willing to go and look for those answers, sometimes maybe even with you or in you. Someone who is full of mercy and where you can see the fruit of God at work in their lives. Someone who is impartial, who does not come to that space of mentoring and discipleship with an agenda, but has integrity, is sincere. We need to understand that this next verse, this end section from verse 18, in our English translation, it's actually backwards. It's actually, it should actually say, for the harvest of righteousness will be reaped by those who sow in peace and are peacemakers. The evidence for that kind of mentorship, for that kind of discipleship, will be there. You don't need to go and rifle through the Christian bookstore for the latest books. You don't need to go and, and find all the podcasts. Don't, don't get me wrong. That can all be really helpful. Yes, absolutely. But we need to remember that ultimately the Christian church is a community and God wants to bring us together. But together, looking firstly and foremostly at Him. Which brings me to the next verse. And I'm bringing this one to you from the Revised Standard Version. James 4 verse 4, he says, Idolaters, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, I've actually changed that first word. In the Revised Standard Version, the word is adulterers. But I did a lot of research into this, and I'm, I'm more comfortable with the word idolaters because he's talking about adultery not in the carnal sense of a marriage bed, but more in the sense of whoring oneself out to a more attractive idea or notion philosophically. He's talking about idolatry here. He's talking about that temptation when a notion, an idea, is so attractive that it leads us away from the things of God. And he's using an accusatory tone here because he knows that the dispersed church has been getting into bed, metaphorically, with many different ideas. Some ideas that had found their roots in the Jewish community, such as the Judaizers who were stressing a return to Mosaic law. Then there were others who were bringing in strange philosophies such as Greek philosophy, Stoicism or Platonism. And some of these things have carried over into the church so that we can see in some of our early medieval documents of the church these ideas notionally remain. Others were blending pagan worship with Christian worship and really getting things quite wrong. And so that's why we need to comprehend and understand that when we begin to entertain these ideas that are beyond or outside that which God has ordained, we are treading on dangerous territory territory that can impinge on, on the first commandment. That's why he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Because it's so important that we understand that our desire is to be close to God, to be friends with him, not to push him away or move away from him. That's why he is challenging us to be as close as we can with him, to control our tongues and to not be corrupted and tempted by the world at large. Friends, there are many times in the Christian church where frugality, where risk aversion, where being sociable or civil with one another, these very kind and, and contemporary notions of how human society should function get in the way of doing the hard work that God is asking the church to do. I encourage you to have courage because when these things happen and we need to respond in a way that perhaps might ruffle some feathers, we need to be prepared to do it, but only if God is in it. We need to have courage to follow the Holy Spirit. How do we do that? For me, it has been by consensus. It has been those instances in which I've sat with other ministers, with spiritual leaders within the congregation, with brothers and sisters who we might not share anything other than that simple space in which we find ourselves in that moment but where we have prayed, we've invited the Holy Spirit, and we have felt and discerned that He is guiding us. I want to conclude with these words from the Gospel of John. This is found in John 18, 36. And Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, 
my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Friends, I challenge you to rack your mind for just a moment and have a think about when did Jesus say this? Who was his audience? Who was he talking to? Do you remember? It was before Pilate. He had been accused by the Jewish leaders. They wanted to kill him. Pilate did not want this man's blood on his hands. So he said to him, is this accusation, the leveraging at you true? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus's answer is both confusing and enlightening. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Friends, we need to realize that we are not citizens of this world. That the philosophies and the good ideas, the civil way of behaving towards one another, all of those things are good attributes of this world. And yes, there are instances in which we need to seek the welfare of the city, as Paul says. And we need to submit and we need to, as a way of being good Christians and good citizens, follow that rigor. But there are times that we must remember that we are not citizens of this world and that we serve a king who is so far beyond this world. Who came, who lived and who willingly died, who willingly was strung up like a criminal in order to give birth to a new way of reckoning, to a new way of being, so that we could be friends with God. He goes on to say that if his kingdom were of this world, then what would have happened, what would have transpired, would have been very different. But instead, he was going to do that which he needed to do. That the Prince of Peace, who leads us as peacemakers, would go on to give his life in courage, not in defeat, but in victory over all that is evil. Submitting himself to the will of God, so that we would be encouraged to be submitting ourselves as well to God's guidance, love, and friendship. So friends, wherever you find yourself in this world, I pray that you too will find opportunities to exercise courage like this. A courage that comes from a place of humility. A courage that loves peace and a courage that sows peace in righteousness. May the Lord bless this word to you this day, and I pray that you will continue to be courageous wherever you find yourselves. Amen.